After managing to completely knock it out of the park with Toy Story 3, Lee Unkridge was allowed to go ahead and come back and work on this project. Which makes sense, because this is a rather well-beloved film, and with good reason. But I want to I address this particular rumination in a slightly out-of-order order than what I would normally do. Let's talk about quality. Now, one of those things that is really common, as I've already said, in fiction is when did such and such decline in quality, right? When did they start sucking? When did Star Wars die for you, right? We've heard that from Star Trek and Star Wars and Doctor Who and Final Fantasy and Mega Man and Mario Brothers and everything you can think of. Games, shows, books, movies, franchises in general, right? It's a very, very, very common topic amongst enthusiasts and geeks such as myself and probably most people who are listening to this. And I have a dot on my glasses. God, I hate it when I get a speck of dirt right there. I'll just deal with that while I talk, if you don't mind. Use these little alcohol wipes. But um, <clears throat> what isn't talked about as often, but I find to be just as interesting of a point of topic and is something that, well, the further on we go, the more it's happening, is when they get better. When do we see a period in time in which they actually manage to start improving again and manage to reclaim that quality? Again, this is the kind of thing that I don't see as well discussed, which is a bit of a shame because, again, some of these companies have been around long enough that we've had not just dips, but bumps right back up. Capcom is probably my personal favorite example that. I know that's gaming, but it's still true. Capcom absolutely nosedive for a while there in the early to mid-aughts. And most of the crap they were pushing out was just bleh, with a couple of notable exceptions. And then they turned it around. And when exactly they turned it around and how exactly they turned it around is a topic of interest to me. Just to name one example. Square Enix would probably qualify as well, although they still are all over the map at this point. But fact remains. And, again, out of the gaming company. But this, of course, brings us back to Pixar. When do you think Pixar got their mojo back? When do you think they got back to the point where they, no really, started doing really well again. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up here, and not substantially earlier than here, because this, this question was applicable several times prior to now, is that most accounts I have seen agree that while there's previous films to this one that might qualify, this is the furthest point. In other words, that by the time they got to Coco, they had their mojo back. What do you think? Do you think this was it? Do you think this is when they managed to pull out of it? Or do you think this was just the latest step in pulling out of it? I can... It's okay. We'll go to plan B. What was that plan B? Got these things right here. Does anybody else have this problem with junk on their glasses? God. Can we invent glasses that just don't get junk on them? Is that a thing? Do we have that, technologically speaking? I keep thinking maybe I should just get lasers shoved into my eyes, but, you know, that's kind of terrifying of a thought because you have to be awake for that. Do you know that? And you have to just sit there going, hmm, <sighs> I'm getting off topic. Do you think Coco qualifies? Do you think it happened before now? As ever and as always, looking forward to your thoughts in the comments. Why is that relevant? Why did I want to start with that? Well, because this film nearly sucked. And in fact, was delayed quite a bit because they were going to make the film. And then controversy hit. Now... You know me. Actually, you probably don't know me at all. But there's a, I, I don't like talking about controversial stuff in general. Not just on my show, but that's a real-life rule that I tend to have that I just don't like discussing certain controversial topics. Um, you might say, well, which topics, Lore? It varies. 
it changes depending on the time, because what is controversial depends on where you are, who you're talking to, and what period in history you're at. Things that were controversial 20 years ago just aren't anymore, and we can just talk openly about it, right? Which leads us to this point. Um, this would be in the cultural uh, appropriation, I think, category, for lack of a better way to put it. But there's another aspect to this. So Disney was like, yeah, we're going to make this, and we're going to make Coco. It's going to be a Latin American, you know, uh, movie. And it's like, okay, cool. And then they didn't hire Latino people for the creative staff or the writers, the director team, or any of that stuff. And then people were just like, I'm sorry, what? And there was a lot of feedback and a lot of bite back, and most of it is extremely understandable. Because, well, it'd be kind of like me trying to do a film about Mexican culture. I'm familiar with Mexican culture. I, I actually grew up in Southern California, and most of my friends didn't even speak English to give you an idea of it. But that, that, me, that still puts me as an outsider. That still puts me as someone who only has a distant understanding of that kind of a thing. So, I mean, if you put me in charge of that kind of thing, what would I do? Well, I actually have an answer for that. I'd hire some Latino people. Now, what's interesting here is Coco could have been another bomb. In fact, this could have bombed even worse than Good Dinosaur. They tried to uh, trademark Dia de los Muertos, and that was going to be the name of the, the movie, right? They the Dead. Now, what's weird about that is that's the name of the actual holiday. People were upset about that. Now, on the one hand, I don't get that. I know that sounds weird to not understand that, especially since how against trademark in general I am, but the problem is we've had plenty of movies and games and books and shows that have all had the names of holidays and they had to trademark those so they could put out that particular work and there wasn't really an issue with it, right? So how is this different? But I already answered why it's different because they were doing it from the outsider's perspective and weren't actually treating it with any level of you know, respect or decency. And on the third hand, because we're a mutant apparently, this is the really funny part. Because, by every account I've read, because of that pushback and because of the fact that Disney, ever wary of their image, which is hysterical considering that's the same motive of the villain of this film, decided to go ahead and try to take steps to correct that. And ended up bringing on a large amount of their actual detractors, but also actual Latino personnel in order to to fix this, to, to, to re-overhaul the film. So the film dragged on a little bit, and the film had a massive and complete overhaul into the format that it's in. I know that's kind of becoming a normal thing at this point for Pixar films. But it was done by people who actually were of that, of, were, were of the culture that the film was of the culture about. What a shocking idea. <laughs> and admittedly, that's kind of exactly what I would do. To be completely blunt. Now, I've had a theory for a while. I will admit this is an unproven theory, but I do firmly believe in this theory. Let me explain what I mean by this. I'm the kind of person who really only cares about the acting talent, right? That's the core thing to me. I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care what your cultural background is. I care how good of an actor or an actress you are when it comes to acting in something that I'm making, right? Caveat, I firmly believe that we have plenty of excellent actors and actresses who are not born in the States. And I've had this theory for a while, and a couple of works have started to prove this in recent memory, that if the teams involved, the creative staff involved, actually reach out and say, hey, 
we need a bunch of Latin Americans, you know, anybody from Central America to come in and we need acting talent from there, that there is a pool of legitimately talented actors and actresses from there that they can pull from. You see why I'm bringing that up with regards to this film. A almost entirely Latino uh, a Latino uh, cast. Ratzenberger is basically the exception here. And a large amount of Latino people working on the creative side of things. And hey, we get Coco, which is a great film. Hmm. Now, obviously, there are caveats here. But I do. you see why I have this theory and why the longer time goes on, the more I think this is proven correct. So I do think this was the right call. Whoever actually made this call, it was the right call to make. And here we are, a film that cost only about $175 million, even after delays, and brought in about 807 There's another interesting little thing about that, though, if I might jump into this really quick. they This film almost was banned in China. And you're probably thinking, ugh. And you'd be right, too, because China is... Way too big brother for my tastes, but, um, despite a few trillion marks. But they have a really strong, uh, precedence to not allow things that, uh, allow certain depictions of ghosts or death or undead to be shown there. You know, no skeletons, things like that. <laughs> this actually is something that only came into my awareness about 15 years ago when World of Warcraft was trying to be released in China. And they had to massively overhaul most of the models because the undead are not just a faction. They're a way of life in the Warcraft setting, so they had to overhaul a lot to get this released there. So how did this film get released in China? Apparently, and I don't know the specifics, I actually strongly suspect that some money changed hands somewhere, but apparently the official story is that the board that that reviews this stuff actually watched the film and decided it was sufficiently culturally significant to allow it to go through. Why is this significant? Well, $180 million of that, ben- of that money came specifically from the Chinese market. I already did the math for you. That's 23.4%. Almost a full quarter of all the income this film made was just the China market. But it does speak to the quality of the work. And it is a high-quality work. you got to be kidding me. Get off my glasses! It does speak to the quality of the work. They didn't do a lot super advanced tech-wise. As usual, they just kind of shoved the tech in the same directions they had been. Uh, they wanted very clear visual distinction between the, the living world and the dead world, and man, they nailed it. Um, they wanted the super lively culture thing. I don't know what to call that. Every time I've studied Mexican culture, and I have several times in my life, the same, I, I come away with the same broad impression. Big, loud lively energy, bright colors, that kind of a thing, right? Now, I've heard several differing reports about why that is, but it certainly does seem to be a fact regardless of the why. And so they really wanted to showcase that as part of the Land of the Dead. They wanted Land of the Dead look to look loud and bright and fanciful and bright colors, etc. And I think they succeeded, my God, but I'll come to that in a minute. They also wanted to do the Finding Nemo thing. This... I think they succeeded brilliantly on this point, just like they did in Finding Nemo. Sorry, I should clarify. In Finding Nemo, they didn't want there to have human uh, emoting, human facial expressions and body movement on fish. They wanted them to look like and act like fish who then emoted, and that was a challenge. And this has been a challenge they brought up several times in several movies since when they're dealing with something that isn't human. 
they had the same problem with the skeletons. They wanted the skeletons to act and look and move like skeletons, but they still needed them to be able to have expressions. If you notice, the skeletons themselves, the bones are malleable, but it's actually only to a certain extent. You know, they can't do, ah, for example, but they could do, ah. And so there's like, it, it's almost like the whole thing is more restrained in how they can express themselves, but it means every little movement, every curve of the mouth or every upturn of the, the eye socket is a little bit more meaningful because there's so relatively little motion that it works very well, in my opinion. Um... Look at my notes here. There's the China thing. Um, using the banners towards the beginning as animation. Very cool idea. Good way to do the backstory. We have narration. I, I'm not going to comment on that. We've already commented on that. Uh, shoe shiner. <laughs> just, she, she decided to go into shoemaking in order to deal with things, which actually worked pretty well for quite a while until Bioware showed up, so... The, they do the song, Remember Me, and we see Cruz, and I'm like, okay, so Cruz is, is obviously his ancestor, his, his great-great-grandfather. By the way, I've never seen this film before. <laughs> I just want to comment on that, because some of my notes are like, uh-huh. <sighs> Hell of a way to go, by the way, getting crushed by a giant, uh, you know, thing. They... Whenever they show them actually playing the guitar, they didn't cheat. And I wanted to comment on this. What I mean by that is you can... The, the audio has nothing to do with the visual. Not really. The audio is coming in from a separate channel, played by a separate person, going in in a separate way. You could have someone bouncing around like and smashing their guitar against the ground, and you would still play the perfect guitar sound, because the audio has nothing to do with the visual. Deciding to go above and beyond, what they did was they would attach GoPros to, to guitars and just have the view. So all they're seeing is the view of the actual playing of the guitar. So they could see how the guitarists would actually use and move their hands and fingers, how they would adjust their stance and, and carry the weight of the guitar so that they could animate it so it looked like the sound was actually coming from the playing of the guitar that was happening. And thing. They didn't cheat, in short. I'm always hugely in fan of not cheating when it comes to graphics design, especially CGI stuff, and especially in filmmaking. Weird segue. One of the only things I'll give the first handful of Transformers films, the, the Michael Bay Transformers films, is the fact that they didn't cheat with the transformation. They actually put the thought and effort into what pieces would move how and where so they didn't collide with each other, and so they fit within the mass of the vehicle they were turning into. Now, those films suck, but I'm always going to praise that animation team because that's damned impressive. Similar concept. So, we establish a little bit here. He's really into guitar, and we find out how traditionalist their family is. This is... uh, nuts, I think is the word I want to use here. We're talking, what, four generations down? Something like that? Of, you must never do such and such because, you know, one of our ancestors said so. Really? <laughs> That's... I, hmm. I mean, I, I'm sorry. That is nutso. I, I, I don't have anything else to say about that. Now, if there was a solid and definitive reason for it, like, say, I don't know, four generations up, one of my ancestors, my great-great-grandma, who I actually met in real life um, when I was much younger, obviously, uh, she decided to say, all right, Lore, never jump into a living volcano, you know, an active volcano. And I'm like... No, I'm going to break with tradition. See, that that makes sense, right? There's a logic behind that. No music? 
No music? Really? Might as well ban math at that point. All right, whatever. We establish, we establish, we establish. Not a lot of world building, actually. All of the establishment in the first, uh, what is it, 20 minutes, I wrote it down, is all focused on the characters, mostly on Miguel himself and trying to establish him, his position, and, oh my God, this is brave again. It is. Think about it. <clears throat> so we've got the young person who is part of a very traditionalist family, and they want to be, ah, whatever it is, insert blank here, they want to be X, but they can't be X because they're actually zero. I'm sorry, dumb joke. But they they want to be, <laughs> no, they're Axel, it's even worse. They really want to be uh, what it is they want to be. And there, there's conflict about it, but they get their moments of being able to... They, they run off into their own and just have this time just set to themselves, to be themselves. And then they come back and they're like, yes! And then, oh, there's a big confrontation with their family. And there's a, a, a vital piece of equipment is destroyed, either the bow or the guitar. And it's like, no! And then they run away and then a big event happens. And then, magic. Now, that's where the similarities end. It's all in the premise and the setup. And I'm not saying this this movie ripped off Brave, but it was amusing to me how much the structure of Act 1 was the same structure as in Brave. I don't mind. I liked Brave. It's just interesting. Anywho, <clears throat> uh, let's see here. So we've got... Uh, <laughs> I, I love his idea. It's monumentally stupid what he decides to do. Okay, I'm going to steal an extremely well-known guitar from an extremely well-known area, and nobody will notice, and I'll go play with this... I mean, it's a really fancy, stylistic guitar. Everyone's going to notice that that's that guitar, right? I know, I know. He's a kid. I get it. And then he goes to the afterlife. Like I said, magic enters the story at about the 20-minute mark. Unlike Brave, which I think could work without magic... This film would not work at all without the magical element, without the afterlife in the Land of the Dead being present. <sighs> all right, so we hear about the rules. We hear about the structure. We see the bridge. Gorgeous stuff, by the way, with the bridge, the, the magnolia petals. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, this is, again, that particle thing. I know they're not literally particles, but I'm just waiting for someone in the comments section as far back as probably, like, say, Toy Story 3 to be like, these aren't particles, but it's the same engine idea and concept that they were doing, which was having lots and lots and lots of what is essentially the same object, the same mesh, being repeated so that they can have this visual design of the, you know, the flowing petals or the, the monkeys or whatever, right? It is br brilliant. But then they show the city... It is rare that I am blown away by graphics. It is damned rare. <laughs> maybe I'm just biased, be, or, or not biased, maybe I'm just jaded, because I've seen so much, so many movies, so many shows, so many games, that it takes something special to really level me. But the visuals of The Land of the Dead floored me. I'd actually pause, because I stopped paying attention to the movie, because I was just drinking in. And again, I'm on the, the new... Uh, set up here with the large screen and the 4K graphics. So I'm just sitting there going, oh my god, look at that. And what's that over there? I know I gushed about Good Dinosaur and Finding Dory and Cars 3, but I have to once again gush. I have to. It is absolutely visually stunning. I could probably do an entire essay just on the visuals of the Land of the Dead. I'm going to bring up a couple more specific points as we go through and as they become relevant, but Gush, gush, gush. You know? Just... Ooh. Ooh, okay. <clears throat> so, 
You can only visit if there's a photo of you on the ofrenda. Now, that's interesting for two reasons. Number one, because the land of the dead has its own bureaucratic structure, because of course it does. I don't mean that as a joke. I mean, that makes perfect sense. While we mock bureaucracies in real life, that's because bureaucracies have been taken into uh, extremes. They have been made in ways that they shouldn't be and don't need to be. And there's needless bureaucracy and there's corrupt bureaucracy. But actual bureaucracy is an extremely valuable tool and something that is essential, nay, required for any kind of organization at any kind of scale above, say, 20 people, right? You gotta keep organized. Monsters Inc., for God's sakes. There's a lot of bureaucracy there, which makes perfect sense because they had so much to keep track of, right? It's the paperwork side of things. So, cool. I'm with it. But what's interesting is he decides to just rush across and try to go for the bridge anyways, and he just sinks through it. Which means there's some actual magic on display here, too. Some rules magic. Now, that's important because there's actually a lot of rules magic in this particular setting. You know, if then programming. That, that's rules magic. You know, if, Rules magic is magic that's not literal or logical. Instead, it's magic that is effectively a set of rules, hence the terminology. Most curses in most fiction, Witcher comes to mind immediately, operate on rules magic. You know, if you do this, then this will happen. Okay? I just, sorry for the brief refresher, but I know that not everyone knows my terminology, so here we are. <clears throat> so, I don't even know. I don't think I actually came up with that phrase. Now that I'm thinking about it. I think I borrowed that from someone else, but I'm getting off topic. So the bridge won't support him. Okay. And then they go, so they, they kind of make their way into the, the, the paperwork land of the dead. And even indoors, this is my first point. I'm going to bring out something. The land of the dead is vertical. Almost everything there is this wonderful, there's this feeling of going up. And a lot of the camera panning shots, instead of being your typical camera panning shots for establishing shots, which is the nice horizontal sweep, we usually start up and then go down, or then up and then do the tilt up. Or, so we can see just how high up this place reaches, and there's so much verticality to it. Even when they go indoors, as in the next scene, where they're in like this five-story place with multiple lines of traffic going both up and down. Brilliant stuff, brilliant stuff. Anyway, sorry, sorry. Gosh, 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 like I said. Um, so this is when we find out about the rule of the blessings. Again, rules magic. I love how the answer for getting him back is actually such a quick and easy joke. It's just, here, I'll give you my blessing under these conditions. Dot, dot, dot. Here you go. Cool. So he goes back, immediately violates the condition, and he's back within seconds. Rules magic. Now everyone's like, why would you do that? And he's just like, I, you're kidding, right? Why wouldn't I do that? I want to be a musician. This then leads to him running into Hector and some shenanigans and some fleeing, and then they decide, okay, we're going to try this other little method and try to get out of here. Okay, cool. Hector is also animated differently than most of the other dead, if you'll notice. He's a lot more flexible in how his body parts can animate separate from himself, and he's not the only one who does that, but he is one of the few who does that, and he does it far more than anybody else does. You'll also notice his bones literally look more rickety and cracked and broken than everyone else's, which makes sense. He is in the process of being forgotten, so he is literally low on HP. This is a good time to bring up that concept. Uh, so, your HP in the Land of the Dead, how much health you have, is entirely dependent on how much you are remembered in the Land of the Living. Except it's hinted to not be quite that simple, but I'll cover more of that in just a moment. Now... Considering that it may or may not have to do with the type of memories, you know, whether someone remembers you good or bad, as long as they remember you, you're still fine, well, that could imply a lot of things. 
Now, Hector mentions that it has to be a direct line of memory, which I don't believe for a second, by the way. Because, I mean, which of his direct descendants is remembering uh, De La Cruz, for example? I'm not even sure he has any direct descendants. The film never mentions it one way or the other. Oh yeah, spoilers. So whether or not he has any doesn't seem to matter. What matters is there's plenty of people who remember him, which actually makes more sense when it comes to this kind of rules magic application. There's a a comic series and a Telltale game uh, about the Wolf Among Us, which is this. It's a. It's a. I don't want to go into details. The, the the summary here is they have a rule in that where the more well-known your fairy tale is, the more relatively powerful you are. Now, yes, I have read the comics. I know that, that that might not necessarily be true, but it's a cool idea that I think they should fully embrace. And I hope if Walking Dead, uh, or Walking Dead, wow, I always say that. If Telltale Wolf Among Us Season 2 ever comes out, I hope they embrace that fully. Because I think it's a great idea, and it's the same general concept. The more people remember you, the bigger and better you are doing, Right? <laughs> It's also implied that the more people remember you, the more, let's call it, influence you have in the actual afterlife. Now that is terrifying. How many people remember Hitler? Now you could argue that maybe this is only the land of the dead for Mexico specifically, or maybe just the Latin America area or something like that. I don't know. But, and uh, honestly, rules of afterlives is something that's actually been a huge fictional fascination for me lately since, you know, not only is WoW Shadowlands a thing, but for some reason I started re-digging into the Forgotten Realms stuff, which also has its own rules for the afterlife. And The point being, I find afterlives and the, the construction of them to be a fascinating concept in fiction, and being able to decide and construct them and the rules is interesting, because you establish these kind of things in part to help them make sense, but also to keep it from being overwhelming. Now, what, what do I mean by overwhelming? Well, there's a bit of an inflation problem, but there's also a bit of a size problem. In Forgotten Realms, the afterlives are effectively infinite. They are sub-dimensions or side-dimensions which have infinite growth capacity. So even if people infinitely swarm in there, the, the land will keep expanding infinitely to have more room for them. So that's not an issue. And you'll notice in this very afterlife, all those buildings are building up implying the very idea that as more people die, that city gets even further up to the heavens, right? But still, it is implied, although not stated outright, that there is an anti-inflation built in, that when the last person who is a direct line to you forgets you, then you are gone, you are forgotten. Even if someone else happens to remember you or your name, it doesn't count. Now, that would make sense. From my own experience, I know my great-great-grandma. I met her. She was a nice woman. Uh, I don't know her parents, I don't know their names, and I don't know their faces. So that's about, what, four to five generations back from me? And that's as far as I go. So under these rules, they would probably be gone. It, assuming I am the only factor there, I'm sure there's other people. Like, my grandparents are still alive, so you know they might remember them, for example. I don't know. But if we are to presume that you know, all of them are dead except for me, which is a horrifying thought, but you, whatever and I'm the only one left in the land of the living, and I don't remember past those generations, then those generations are gone. You see the logic here, or at least the theoretical logic. But again, which types of memories count? Because we see with De La Cruz that his non-family members put him on their ofrenda, and they put him, you know, they remember him, and they venerate him, and he gets all these resources, and it allows him all this clout and political affluence within the afterlife. So clearly, memories in general do work, which, again, brings me back to that question. Hitler? 
I mean, I know that's the big obvious target. There's plenty of large-scale, well-known people who would probably be remembered quite a ways after their death. But you get my point, right? It, it's just interesting to think about. It also implies that people who do a lot, good or bad, in their lives would be the ones who live longest in the afterlife. Now, the thing, the, the, the limiter on all this, is that nobody in the li land of the living knows any of this. They don't know that all of this is relevant, so they don't really have the ability to game the system. This would be a distinction from, to continue the parallel, Forgotten Realms. In Forgotten Realms, everyone knows the afterlives exist. It's, it's, a, it's an everyday thing. You can physically go there. You just plane shift. Okay, we're there. Cool. But in this setting, in Coco's setting, they don't know. There's no acknowledgement or understanding or crossing over in one direction, only in the other. Once you die, you learn the rules. So hope you made a big name for yourself one way or another. This, but this is a good thing from a, from a world building perspective. Because again, if the living knew, then they would try to game the system. They would, there would be people who would try to make as big of a splash as they possibly could, even if it means, you know, massacring thousands of people or doing horrific acts of terribleness in order to try and ensure that people remember them as like, oh, remember that terrible person, such and such. And then they get to live forever in the afterlife. But since they don't know, they can't do that. What I'm trying to say is that for once, what might actually be the first time, actually, this is a very well-constructed sequence of world-building. That is very rare for Pixar. Most of the time, Pixar's world-building falls apart if you think about it for a bit. By contrast, this world-building makes a surprising amount of sense. Now, I'm just waiting for somebody to jump in the comments and tell me, No, Laura, you're wrong! And feel free to do so. There might be something I'm missing here. I just wanted to comment on that because... I think this is literally the first world-building bit that really makes sense. Even Toy Story and Monsters, Inc., which I would say would probably be the number two slot, only makes sense if we headcanon a lot of things and restructure the, the nature of the setting a little bit in order to make sense. Whereas here, it just makes sense straight out of the gate. Anyways, anyways, anyways. Sorry for really derailing into world-building. Uh, visual distinction. Now, this is really cool. Big, expansive high-rises, lots of verticality, and then Hector takes them right down to sea level. And it is. It's right there on the waterfront. And they're in shanties. There's no real lighting. There's no fanciness. There's no colors. It's just all drab, gray, dull. It's the slums where people go who are being forgotten. Yeah, that tracks. Because in an afterlife where your currency, I, I, I said health earlier, but really it seems to be very much a form of currency is how well remembered you are. The people who are remembered the least would be the poor. And the people who are actively being forgotten would be the poorest. And then we get to see in person a cessation. It's the second time I've had to watch Adama die. Anyways. <clears throat> now... This is when we, we imply the memories thing, which I already mentioned. And they do a musical montage. Okay, that's some cool stuff. And there's this band who just nails it. Of course, that goes right before him. This, uh, this also leads to the scene where he has to perform for the first time. It's his first performance ever. Now, A, thank goodness he actually has been practicing a lot and is legitimately very good at what he does. Because B, his nerves are absolutely destroying him. Yeah, I know that feeling. How many, you, how many of you know that feeling of, of getting up on stage and having to perform? I actually distinctly remember the exact moment I learned how to overcome that fright and give my performance. It was 
Oh, that would have been sixth grade. I remember the building. I can point it out to you. I remember the exact classroom I was in. Yeah, I know. It was in school. But I was supposed to give uh, to be or not to be. It was that speech. And I had to do it in front of the class. And I was just wigging out and wigging out. And it, it was like a freaking switch went off in my head as I just realized that the audience wasn't there. That's how I do it. I mean, obviously the audience is there and I'm performing for them. But my point being, they they stopped being a factor of the equation. If you were to look at the formula that is deciding my performance, the variable here that was the audience was removed. And with that one shrink, everything could just, it fit. And, and, and it equals EMC squared. It makes so much sense. And then I just started performing. I don't know how other people do it. But I bring that up because it's clear that he's having the same problem. He's just freaking out hard because, oh, God, there's these people and they're staring at me. And, oh, God, now they're judging me. And you start to seesaw a little bit, too, as as you freak out harder. Thankfully, he overcomes it and actually starts singing. And he's awesome. And this is cool. Everything here is cool. He, um, okay. <laughs> Granted, I'm almost 40. I believe I will actually be 40 years old by the time this video goes live. In fact, I will be. I know I will be. So I will be 40 years old by the time this this uh, video goes live. That's a weird thought. I'm not 40 yet, obviously. In fact, I'm not even 39 yet, to give you an idea. <laughs> I record videos a little bit in advance. <clears throat> but I, if so, if you came to me and said, Hey, Laura, Mr. Runner, we're going to offer you the ability to live. Or you can die and be forgotten. And I'm like, well, okay, what's the catch? Well, if you live, we are going to take something that you truly love and eject it. You can never do that again. On, and, and they'll know because it's rules magic. So the moment you break that, you do end up going back to the land of the dead. And that's game. You're dead now. Congrats. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably die. Again, though. I'm a little, you know, I'm a little older than Miguel is, so I'm a little more sure of that decision. But I'm curious what you would choose if given a similar choice that Miguel has given. We are to presume that music is something that is, I have no better way to put this, an aspect of his soul, his core. Something that really, actually matters to him. And, yeah, that would suck to lose such a thing permanently. I mean, even something that sounds simple like, you know, lore, you can never play video games again. Video games aren't just fun, and they're not just my job. That's a part of my life. It's a part of who and what I am. To lose that permanently? Yeah, no, I'll take death. Thank you. So I don't really blame Miguel for his choices, despite his age. Now, they start to do the dis typical Disney thing a little bit here. And this is when I'm going to go ahead and talk about the central theme of this work. Is it music? I mean, I guess. There's more music in this than usual for Pixar films. Is it being true to yourself? Well, I mean, kind of. That is certainly an element to it. Especially when we see certain things with uh, Cruz later. Is it family? Eh. It's support. Now, to explain this in more succinct words, I'm going to try. I'm going to fail here. Imagine that someone relies, that you are supporting someone, that you are doing something that is helping to hold them up, physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, whatever, right? That is what I mean when I say support. The ways in which we go out of our way to do something solely for someone else. A, a fairly selfless gesture, actually. 
you know, Hector and his support of his friend uh, Chicharron. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Please forgive me, by the way. I'm probably pronouncing everything wrong here. Uh, the Alhabreas, who are another example of their entire existence exists to support their people, help guide and take care of the souls. Um, Miguel's family, the way that they are trying to help him and look for him, and the way that they are failing at supporting him and who and what he wants to be. The band that helps Miguel get into the party just because he's a fellow musician. Imelda, uh, Imelda and Miguel. Definitely pronouncing one of those. Or not Miguel, sorry. Imelda and uh, Hector. And the way that they kind of lean on each other, supporting each other. This theme is in almost every single element of this film, including within... That of the villain, who doesn't even show up until the hour mark. Yeah, I know, Cruz has actually been in the film until then. But Cruz himself, the actual character, doesn't actually arrive until the one hour mark. This is an interesting choice. It's a good choice, I think, because it's kind of the Sephiroth route. Yeah, I know, I refer to video games a lot. What do you want from me? Because what you do is you establish a character a lot, but they're effectively off-camera. You may have pictures or videos or flashbacks or whatever, but they're not actually there. You do all this work and effort to build them up and build them up and build them up, and then they show up. Now, what's really interesting is Cruz is introduced at the one-hour mark, and at the one-hour, five-minute mark, they reveal he's a villain, which I also think was a correct choice in terms of pacing and narrative construction. Um, introducing him and then letting that linger a little bit too long would have actually ruined the impact of it, I think. Instead, hi, I'm Cruz. Very brief montage of him talking to his, his ah, my, my grand, my great grandson, my great grandson. Given how big he is on legacy, given how much the memories of him give him so much political clout and power within the afterlife, you can see why this is such a big deal to him. If nothing else, we see this in the giant hall of all the food and guitars and other tribute that is given to him from all the people who still remember him, right? So, then it's revealed that he's a villain. But what does this have to do with Cruz and support? Think about how many people are supporting Cruz. Think about how many people are keeping him up there, are more or less literally holding him up so that he is above everyone else. Who is Cruz supporting? So, Hector pieces it together, finds out what's going on. I asked a question a while ago, and I've just kind of sat on that question because it hasn't really been relevant to us. Who's the worst? Let me rewind that. Obviously, the worst villain would probably be, you know, Storm from Cars 3. But my point is, who is the most evil villain? Most villainous villain of the Pixar block, of the Pixar films? Now, I already gave two theories for that, uh, one of which was Hopper. A, a bully and a tyrant who built a, a rule through fear. And one of them was Lotso, a bully and a tyrant who built a rule through fear. I'm going to go ahead and add De La Cruz to that list. What's interesting is that he does actually have the same kind of thing, but in a totally different way. He's still got all the power and all the influence and all the... He's got his own security team and does all this stuff for him, but he is uniquely pathetic even more so than the previous two villains were. They at least had something going for them, like an intellect or a charisma or ability to think through a situation. But De La Cruz, he's a nobody. 
He's an irrelevant, inconsequential little prat who doesn't have a particularly large amount of musical talent, singing interest, brains, charisma, strength, or anything going for him. He just decided to murder his best friend in order to steal his stuff and then become famous, and then he just happened to die at the height of his career. Which means, under the rules of this setting, he died at the perfect time, before his star was able to fade. So everyone remembers him because, oh my god, it's the JFK effect. No insult intended to anybody who's a fan of John F. Kennedy, but the reason, I'm going to tell you this right now, the reason JFK is so remembered is so venerated by so many people for so many years, was because he died in office. You know, the, the assassination. Now, there are other competing factors there. I'm aware of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But uh, you get my point? When you... People remember that. And remember, memories equal power, currency, health. So no wonder. he He lucked out. He completely lucked out. And he couldn't even plan that. Because, again... Humans don't know that. The living are not aware of the rules. And he's just been riding that wave. For decades, he's been riding that wave. <sighs> but the thing that I think makes him so damned evil, to the point where he could contest a brutal dictatorial tyrant and a brutal dictatorial tyrant, is the fact that his villainy is so personal. Both Lotso and Hopper are more macroscopic villains. They are interested in the power, the scope, you know, the, the armies and the, the pyramid and the structure and the control. De La Cruz is someone who's willing to murder a child, a living child, because that way his reputation is maintained. Never mind the fact that he was willing to murder his best friend so that he could get that reputation to begin with. There's a really wonderful, chilling line. I don't understand. You We're family. Yes. And Hector was my best friend. Ooh. And yeah, that's the other thing. Uh, De La Cruz actually thinks they're family at this point in time. He, he isn't aware of the twist. <sighs> so that's cute. What do you think? Do you think he qualifies as far as the, the villainy level? Do you think some, someone else qualifies? Food for thought. We've still got, what, four films left to go? So we'll see if anybody else qualifies going forwards. Moving on. So this then leads to the twist. Hey, okay, Hector's the family. I admittedly saw that coming for a while. I almost regret it because it would be interesting. It would totally change the theme of the work. Because one of the things we find out, this is actually in, in behind-the-scenes material, is that it doesn't matter. Basically, if... Um, if De La Cruz had given him the pedal and he had taken it, it would have worked. Because he considered him family in that moment. Because family isn't blood. And that rule actually applies in this setting. Like, as, as part of the rules magic thing. It would have been interesting if then this could have become, become part of that theme of people who support each other regardless of blood relation because family is chosen. But instead, they decide to make it Hector, who's a cool guy and has basically been a cool guy the whole time, which makes sense. He's so okay. There we go. We're locked in. We're locked in. Um, we find out this bit that uh, they did this thing. He and his daughter did a thing where he'd sing the song at the same point in time every night, so that she could sing the song at the same point every time of night. So even though they were miles distant, they would still be together. 
that's an awesome concept and something I actually fully believe in in real life. Not as in a literal metaphysical connection, but you ever see me do phone hugs? It's something I do sometimes when I'm texting someone. And I say phone hugs, and then I actually take a moment to, f- to hug the phone. Now, I do that every single time. There's literally video evidence of it. And I've shown my family that I do that. Why? So that they know, even though they can't see it, and even though they can't feel it, and even though they're 500 miles uh, that way, <laughs> I had to think about that for a second, that is still happening. That action is still happening. So even despite the distance, a real event is happening so they can have a real impact to it. It's the same concept. And I really like that idea and how they showcase it here. He also says, I'm proud to be your family. How many of you can say that of someone? I can't. I'm, I'm fortunate. I got a cool family. We're, we're cool. I got the glasses, but they're in the case right now. We're cool, though. <sighs> so... They uh, <laughs> they managed to get on stage and do the thing. And can I just take a moment to gush about the background again? Oh, my God, the city. And they show the stadium. And we see the roads in the distance. Oh, it's just a feast. It's a feast for the eyes. Oof. I actually want to watch this film again just to drink in this, the land of the dead. I'm not joking. It is so gorgeous. Okay, okay. <clears throat> So we find out Dante is, in fact, uh, a La Habreas. Shocker. And a La Habreas? I'm not sure the the, the proper uh, structure for that. But, um, so they go, they manage to sneak their way in. She did decide to use the papaya thing. And the fire. Why is it on fire? What is with this show? Whatever, whatever. And um, they decide to go ahead and, you know, everything's cool. You know, they rush through it. Uh, he's revealed for the pathetic person he is. Melda gets to sing again and, and absolutely loves it, and they kind of reconcile, and there's some really, really great moments. What? Whap! This is for murdering my one true love. She means me. Whap! And this is for trying to murder my great-great-grandson. She means me. That might actually be the, uh, let's go second best scene in the whole film, right there. <laughs> because, again, Cruz isn't really a particularly intimidating or effective villain. He is pathetic. I'm not even going to say he's a Krennic, because he's not. A Krennic is deluded. A Krennic is someone who thinks they're a big fish, but is a small fish. Cruz is, is in many ways a big fish. He's just so pathetic. He is so ill-equipped for anything that he's dealing with. And it shows in every one of his interactions with everybody. And he can't, he can't even get this woman off of his stage while he controls security. This then leads to the big confrontation out back. I love the bit where the one woman's like, slowly turns the camera to point at him, hits record, so everyone can see. And they see their beloved idol try to, and arguably effectively, murder a child, and then stomp back on stage. Yeah. So he gets rushed off, smashed by the bell. Uh, you ever heard of Death of the Author? I know this is a weird time to bring it up, but the reason I bring it up is because Death of the Author has two aspects to it. One of which is not relevant for this, so we're just going to eject that. But the other is whether or not the things an author or writer or creator says are considered canon or not if they are not displayed on camera slash on the pages, right? So it has been confirmed in interviews that he actually survived that bell crushing him, which I suppose makes sense. I like to think that he didn't. What do you prefer? 
This whole film didn't hit me emotionally. Very impressive, don't mistake me. Wonderful, uh, nice, nicely written, good, con good construction, good events, brilliant, gorgeous visuals, you know, nice theme going through it. Good film, but it didn't hit me emotionally until Hector is dying, his final death. He is cessating, actually, as he is being actively forgotten and simply gives the pedal no conditions so that, you know, his, his, his great-great-grandson can live and get out of here just in time. That started to hit me. Then he rushes back. He's back in the land of the living and rushes as fast as he can to, to Grandma Coco and tries to help her. Now, okay, in the interest of total honesty, I think that scene dragged a little bit because it takes too long to get to the point where he starts playing the song. I know, it's a minor nitpick, and it's it's just a bump in what is otherwise an excellent sequence, because then he sings the song for her, and yeah, no, tears. Tears. Pixar tears. Totally admitting it. Wow. And so she is, her memory triggers to the point where she is actually able to remember. That makes sense. Music and audio tend to be a big trigger thing for memory in general. Uh, along with smells a big one too, believe it or not, but that's not relevant here. And so the idea that the song would help anchor her memories makes a lot of sense to me. And so she reacts and she's like, yeah, okay, and everything's cool. Uh, we see the happy ending. They, you know, he, he finally gets to go back. He's reunited with his daughter, finally. Oh, reunited with his love. The two of them reconcile. They manage to cross the bridge. No issues. Really minor points. The last thing I'm going to bring up. But it says a lot about the attitude of the film as a whole. Most of the people, uh, all but one actually, in the Land of the Dead are cool. They're nice. They're helpful. They're decent folk, right? Probably the best way I could showcase that is there's the photo taker. Now, Hector comes back and the photo taker's like, ugh, Really? But he's just like, okay, take the picture. She's like, all right. She takes it, and there's a photo up. And her response is to smile and be happy for him. You get to go. You get to cross over. That's such an awesome, minuscule moment that I'll admit, I'm tearing up just a little bit thinking about it because it says so much about the attitude of the film as a whole and something that I have always pulled out of Mexican culture in general. Celebration. That it's all about celebrating and focusing on the positive side of things. Bright, happy, loud. <sighs> this is a good one. This is a good one. I like this one. And we've got four to go. We're almost there. I do hope, as ever and as always, you have enjoyed. See you next time.